Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. I want to start the program today, and we're going to start it this way. I want you to listen to this. So you may be asking what I'm doing. Well, I'm going to ask our first guest uh, why the bells are ringing. And our first guest is Israel's ambassador to Canada, Ambassador Ido Moed, is back with us on the program. Mr. Ambassador, thank you for the time. And what's the significance of the bells today? Thank you very much, Roy, for having me on your show again. I appreciate this this bell ringing because it is to remind us that, that today we mark 100 days since the 7th of October massacre. 100 days have passed and we still have 136 abductees kept in horrendous conditions in Gaza. They are there without us knowing what is their fate. We have no idea how they're held. We know that from testimonies that they are abused. And it's just horrific. The 1,200 people who died in that massacre and their memory uh, needs to be relived. We are at war with a terrorist organization called Hamas. And uh, we do hope that we will not have to have such days as today to, to commemorate. We want our people back and we want this war to end. But Hamas needs to be eliminated. Yeah, Mr. Ambassador, we've been hearing news uh, stories today that family members of hostages and Israeli citizens have been demonstrating in Israel and demanding the hostages be released, demanding that the government and the Prime Minister Netanyahu get this accomplished. Could you speak to that? The very broad public in Israel supports the government in its war against Hamas, but at the same time as we hear of the fate of the hostages from the testimonies of those who were liberated, the pressure among the people of Israel is mounting. These people need to be released. 136 people, young and old, children, men and women, are held in who knows where conditions. They have. They are starved. They are abused. They are. They are. Uh, there are stories of rape and and, and other horrendous crimes. So the public wants to air their concern and their yearning for their release. And so the government is working and is doing its utmost. The military pressure on Hamas, we know that there's, that also bears fruit, but we have to keep it up. And that's why public speaks up. Okay. So uh, even though the public in Israel is protesting or, or massing and uh, demonstrating the they are still supportive of the, the, the government and the initiative by Prime Minister Netanyahu, who said as well that Israel will continue its mission to destroy Hamas regardless 
of opposition, including by international courts. And we know that story. I'll talk to you about that in just a moment. But the people of Israel are still strongly, are telling me, still strongly behind Mr. Netanyahu. They are very strong behind the, the war. There is, it's a very broad government right now, and so we can easily say that the broad public is, all of it is in support of the government and is in support of this war against terrorism, against this source of evil that was inflicted on us. And we once that is dealt with, perhaps other things will evolve politically, but that is not what we are focusing on. We are focusing on winning this war. So the South African charge at the United States, the United Nations, International Court of Justice, uh, was that, or continues to be, that Israel is guilty of genocide. And uh, United States and other countries have uh, absolutely uh, refused to accept that premise. The Prime Minister took until this past Friday with Mr. Trudeau saying only, and I quote, our wholehearted support of the ICJ and its processes does not mean that we support the premise of the case brought forward by South Africa. Ambassador Moet, to me, that's not a complete rejection of South Africa's case against Israel before the International Court of Justice. Seems to me to be a lukewarm support from Mr. Trudeau uh, of Israel at best. Well, I think at the same time, the message from Canada is very clear about the support for Israel's right to exist and to defend itself in accordance with international law. This is exactly what we are doing. When it comes to the International Court of Justice, we, we, we see that countries are very careful with the way they formulate their messaging, but it is clear that there is no genocide. Also from Canadian perspective, there is no genocide. And I think this is very important to note that um, the international community does not see merit in this case, means that it's a politicization of, of, of a legal instrument that was cynically enough brought into place following the worst crime of humanity against another people, and that is the Holocaust. And so weaponizing this against the very people who are now victim of another effort to eliminate the people of Israel is very cynical. And so in that sense, it's very important that Canada came out with a statement. Yes, we would have preferred it to be stronger. Of course, we would have, and that is clear. But at the same time, it is very important that Canada makes this statement about not accepting the premise of this case, because that means that the accusation of genocide doesn't really stand. Yeah, several Liberal Party members of uh, Parliament, I'm not going to ask you to get into domestic politics, but we do have several Liberal Party uh, members of Parliament uh, publicly siding with South Africa and uh, five Liberal and New Democrat members of Parliament traveling to the West Bank, and several signed on to a ceasefire demand. That seemed... Do you understand that when, when people are doing that, particularly since there was a ceasefire in effect uh, on October the 7th? Yes, exactly. Ceasefire existed, as you very rightly noted, until October the 6th, and Hamas broke it. They broke another ceasefire when we created the humanitarian uh, uh, pause and they will continue to do it again and again. So there is no reason to believe that Hamas can be any, any partner in anything in this, in this issue. And so the calls for ceasefire, I think that in many ways are actually, are, and we said that also in the ICJ, in the International Court of Justice very clearly, 
are there to support Hamas in their efforts to regroup and to rearm itself and to continue their assault against Israel. And that is, that is of course, something that we will not accept. We have to defend ourselves against this ongoing threat, and we have to make sure that it's eliminated. But what is also very important to note in the context of this, of this, uh, this blood libel that was put in place by, by South Africa is that what Israel is doing and has been doing very clearly from the outset is making sure of making sure that everybody knows that it's doing its utmost to keep any people who are not involved out of harm's way. I, I must stress, for Israel, any victim, any death is a tragedy. It doesn't matter if it's an Israeli or Palestinian. But when these people are innocent uh, bystanders, there is no reason why they should die. The only reason that this is happening is because Hamas initiated a war against Israel and against the Jewish people to annihilate it. So it's a war that was forced upon us, and we have to fight back. And it's very unfortunate that uh, there are victims in this. We are trying our utmost to warn people to stay out of harm's way. We inform them directly by phones, by uh, leaflets, millions of leaflets that were dropped over the Gaza Strip, and uh, by calling them and by making sure that they understand where are the safe places to go. And actually, we even protected many people in Gaza against Hamas by putting tanks in place to allow for people to move from one part of the Gaza Strip to another because we knew that Hamas would attack them. So we want to make sure that when we are fighting Hamas, at least as people are hurt as possible, and at the same time also facilitate the flow of international aid and support for those who need it within the Gaza Strip. Right. It's an extremely complicated process, but we are doing that. Uh, uh, we are working very hard to make sure that that happens all the time. We're just talking, Mr. Ambassador, about the uh, the visuals of innocent civilians, um, dead children, uh, wounded, uh, children killed. And I just received an email from a listener saying that he's very supportive of Israel, but he's asking the question, shouldn't Israel's world-class military be more surgical in its operations against Hamas? Good question. Uh, I think uh, the answer to that is in the time that Israel has taken to uh, prepare for the uh, operation in Gaza, which was three weeks from 7th of October until we started the operation. Uh, the three weeks have passed in our preparations. We have enough munition and power to, to, to really raise gas very quickly, but we, we prepared because we knew this is going to be very complicated. And as it turns out to be, I think the most complicated warfare, urban earth warfare ever fought anywhere around the world. And so we are very meticulous. We have divided the Gaza Strip into small uh, parcels of land where we inform the inhabitants of a specific area in advance that uh, there is an incoming attack so they will be able to move away. Um, we inform them in time uh, so that they have time to go elsewhere. We inform people where they can find water and shelter. We work very closely on a daily basis with the international organizations, the United Nations and others, to make sure that these safe passages are as far as we are concerned, guaranteed. And we try to inform people, in, by, even by calling them on the phone, to tell them, listen, get out of the house, of our, out of harm's way. We know you are not involved. 
So we are doing whatever we can, and I don't think that in the past any any government or military has made so many efforts to to protect the local population from our own attacks, because we, of course, we understand that we have to do that. That's our duty, and this is also what a very broad population of Israel believes. Palestinians will be our future neighbors. They are our neighbors now, and we have to find ways also to think about the future of this conflict. And the future will be some form of coexistence, which we'll have to have after we establish um, sufficient security guarantees. But that is the process that we'll have to work on after we, we complete the eradication of Hamas. What are the threats uh, now, Mr. Ambassador, do you think of a wider war developing in the region? We have the Houthis attacking shipping in the Red Sea and Iran-backed militias attacking U.S. military posts in Iraq and southern Syria, resulting in two U.S. bombing and missile assaults on the Houthis. Uh, one mission including British fighter jets attacking Houthi missile sites and radar locations. Um, at some point, is, is Iran going to be held accountable because they're behind all of this? They fund and they provide the weapons to these orchid groups like, like the Houthis. I absolutely agree. Iran has to be uh, uh, to be accountable for what is happening, what's transpiring in the region. They have tens of proxies they are fighting this war through. So it's the Hezbollah in Lebanon that has killed today a mother and son in the north of Israel by shooting a, a rocket grenade from uh, from Lebanon into Israel, into a civilian uh, village called Fariuval. They are responsible for arming and training the Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and the like. They are coordinating on a constant basis with those organizations. They are traveling into the region. They are meeting them in Beirut and elsewhere in Damascus. And they are the ones that are behind the Houthis. And when people understand that their scope of reach is not just Israel, but their missiles reach far beyond uh, Central Europe, in the U.S., you understand that actually this, uh, this country poses a threat to, not only to the Middle East, but far beyond. So uh, Iran should be held accountable for what... For so, so, how, so, so how do you see that happening? Because this is the time, this 100 days of war between Israel and Hamas. Uh, Iran supplies, funds Hamas, similarly Hezbollah and the Houthis. But we have about a minute, Mr. Ambassador. Isn't this the time? Wouldn't this be the perfect time? to really hold Iran accountable. They're, they're, they're killing their own people. Absolutely agree with that. It has to happen through the United Nations. It has to happen through any other international platform, be it ICJ or elsewhere, where Iran needs to be held accountable for their crimes and their complicity in the crimes and their instigating of these horrendous war crimes and crimes against humanity and genocide. They've stated again and again that they will erase Israel from the map. So I... I think that this is the time to call on the international community to come together with a very strong statement to Iran to stop their uh, their, their horrendous uh, and, and fatal efforts to, to eradicate Israel from the map and actually to inflict harm to the free world. This is a war about values, and this is a war about our freedom. David Milgard. I want to talk about David Milgard for a second before we talk to our guest who knew David very well. I knew David somewhat. David Milgard was charged with murder when he was a teenager. 
In the death of a nurse in Saskatchewan, the actual killer was right there for the police to grab, but it would have meant a little work. So they didn't do the work. David was available, so they grabbed him and they charged him, and he was convicted, and he was sent to prison as a teen. Many of you will remember the story because it was David's mother, Joyce, who confronted Prime Minister Brian Mulroney in a very public arena and, and alerted him to her son's great injustice. By then, he'd spent, I think, close to 20 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. Um, all thanks to Brian Mulroney because Mr. Mulroney pursued it. And eventually this ponderous self-congratulatory justice system in this country had to admit that a great travesty had been committed and David Milgard had been imprisoned when he was innocent. After 15 years, justice officials went to David and said, look, just just admit you've done it. Just admit to the murder and we'll let you go. We'll, we'll, we'll get us your parole. And David Milgard said, no, I did not commit the murder. I'm not going to say I did. So he spent another total of eight, an additional eight years of his life in prison. 23 years in total. So through Joyce, his mother, I got to know David a bit. And over the years after he was released, we would talk both on and off the air. And I don't know what uh, Tom and Matt in the studio have selected, but I asked them to find a clip of David Milgard on this program. David died. It's about a year and a half ago now, two years ago. I asked them to find a clip of David just talking to us. Play it, guys. In my situation, uh, there was a serial rapist that was responsible for the crime. And that information was available for people to see and should have been disclosed by the prosecution. And had it been even disclosed uh, prior to my appeals in the Saskatchewan Appeal Court, I would have been released. Yeah. Larry Miller was the killer. Oh, yeah, they convicted him after David had spent his 23 years in prison. We talked to Rob Baltovich on this program three years ago, two, three years ago. He was convicted of murdering his girlfriend. Police took the easy way out. Crown took the easy way out. He was convicted. He went to prison. Eventually, through Innocence Canada, he was found not guilty. So this past week, two men, Robert Bobby Mailman and Walter Wally Gillespie of New Brunswick, who were convicted on May the 11th, 1984, in the murder of George Lehman in November of 1983, were acquitted of the crime and released from prison. By the way, both men had strong alibis with multiple witnesses placing them kilometers from the crime scene on the day of the murder. Mr. Mailman is 76. Now, he served 18 years in prison, and he's terminally ill. Mr. Gillespie is 80 years of age, and he spent 21 years of his life sentence in prison. 
Wait till you hear what the Crown did when they were appeared before the Chief Justice in, in St. John. Wait till you hear what the Crown did. Ron Dalton is our guest. It was Ron is the uh, is the president of Innocence Canada, which intervened on behalf of Mr. Mailman and Mr. Gillespie, and worked to gain their freedom as Innocence Canada has done for others, including David Milgard. Ron was also convicted of murder, convicted of murdering his wife, and that was medical incompetence and justice incompetence, and Ron was eventually and correctly found innocent and was released from prison. How are you, Ron? I'm well, Roy. Everything I said, is is there, do you take issue with anything I've said? No, it brings a tear to my eye, but I don't take issue with any of it. Yeah, how could it not? You know, when, when, when I'm, I'm just thinking, just about you now, so Robert, Bobby Mailman, and Walter Wally Gillespie, 76 and 80, respectively now, spent 18 and 21 years in prison, respectively. And you spent, I think, was it 12 years? 12 years, start to finish. 12 years, start to finish. I was uh, 34 years ago, Roy, I was actually serving a life sentence alongside these two gentlemen. Oh, I didn't know that. And that was a couple of years before Innocence Canada or predecessor Edwick uh, was even started. So this this is a, one of our longest outstanding cases, but it's a very personal case for me. Who were they? Can you tell us a bit about uh, Mr. Mailman and Mr. Gillespie? Um, Mr. Mailman... Uh, had a little bit of a criminal record. He was known as a local thug, uh, uh, had some armed robbery charges, but he had beaten several criminal cases, serious cases, in courts in St. John. There were three Superior Court judges in St. John, New Brunswick, 40 years ago. Bobby had been in front of all three of them within a 10-month period and had been acquitted of all of the, the various charges. These guys wanted him off of the street. They didn't particularly care what for. So when Mr. Lehman's body was found, uh, they didn't care that uh, Mr. Mailman or Mr. Gillespie had solid alibis, weren't in the area. They didn't care that they were paying witnesses to testify against them. They didn't care that witnesses recanted several times to police officers, prosecution, uh, journalists, and and others. They, They put all of that aside, and they just went full steam ahead to get Mr. Mailman off of the street. Mr. Gillespie will happen to be hanging around with him on the day that they came looking for him. Uh, Mr. Mr. Gillespie, two days after he was arrested, was offered a chance to take a two to three year sentence as an accessory if he would point the finger at Mr. Mailman. Mr. Gillespie, solid guy that he was, said, I can't say I saw something that I didn't see. It cost him 40 years of his life. That's that's the bulk the bulk of his life really because the man is eighty years old. He's living in a bed sitting room now. He uh, uh, until a week ago when we went to court in front of the chief justice and and had acquittals entered for both men. Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Gillespie was living in a halfway house, and they used to pay him a part time job for an eighty year old guy to disinfect the doorknobs and and do some COVID cleanup sort of stuff. He not only lost his place to live at the halfway house, but he lost that little bit of income that he had coming in. Oh, he was acquitted. So they continued to, to punish and 
and and uh, try and destroy these men. Mr. Mailman, unfortunately, uh, received a terminal diagnosis two months ago, suggesting that he had between one and three months to live. Nobody knows exactly how long he'll he'll be around. What we do know is it won't be very long. I had I had lunch with Mr. Mailman in the middle of September, and he was telling me then he's he's not a large man, but he was telling me he was 165 pounds. Uh, when I saw him a week ago, he was 109 pounds. Oh my goodness! Man, man's very difficult. To, to oh my face. goodness! So there'll be no justice for for those two men. There'll also be no justice for Mr. Lehman and his family. Mm-hmm. The man was murdered. This, this is not a case where, like my own, where there was no crime that happened. This man was murdered, set on fire, and, and left to be found by some joggers in a, in a local park. But there'll never be a proper investigation after 40 years into that crime. Most of the police officers, and I'm sure a lot of the witnesses and other players, are not even around anymore. So everyone, everyone loses, uh, and that's the specific people who were intimately involved. The people who really lose are the people of New Brunswick and, and the people of the country. They lose confidence in their justice system. So what we had after working on Innocence Canada worked on this case for 15 years. As I said, 34 years ago, I was uh, uh, practicing as a jailhouse lawyer and just writing some letters to uh, uh, justice ministers, to lawyers, to journalists, trying to get some traction in their case from the inside, from from the prison we were all in. And uh, what happened last week now is the federal justice minister had overturned their convictions, sent it back to the Court of King's Bench in New Brunswick for retrial. We actually held two murder trials within a one-hour period in St. John last week as the chief justice uh, came down from Fredericton to hear the matter personally. She called the matter. The Mr. Mailman and Mr. Gillespie pled not guilty. The Crown stood up and said they had no evidence to offer. The men were acquitted. And the following day, the Chief Justice uh, issued a written apology to the gentleman. That's good. That's good. That's good. What did not happen, though, Roy, was uh, the Chief of Police for the St. John Police Service or the Attorney General for New Brunswick, they were silent. We we were in the media for a week. I did probably 30 interviews, I suppose, and some of them with you know, Canadian press and wire service got picked up by others across the country. Eventually, on Friday, the chief held a little press conference, said that he was going to hire someone to look into what went wrong 40 oh, years ago. Good, good, but he stopped good, good. short of, of offering an apology to Mr. Mailman or Mr. Gillespie. Ron, I have so to take it. Essentially, we're, we're, we're left, sorry to drag you along, we're, essentially we're left with, with the supposition that they don't think there was anything done wrong. So we, we can only just wait for the next wrongful conviction to come out of St. John, New Brunswick. Yeah. The attitudes haven't changed in 40 years. Don't, don't go away, Ron. I want to talk to you some more. But what happened to Mr. Mailman and Mr. Gillespie and David Milgard, in my view, amounts to judicial lynching. Yeah, I wouldn't argue with that. I'm thinking, I'm just thinking here, Ron, you, you were in, in the same prison at the same time, and you knew Robert Mailman and Walter Gillespie, who never wavered from in their position that they were innocent, just as David Milgard did not, just as you did not. So how many more, do we have any ideas or a guesstimate, estimate of how many more not guilty individuals are in prison serving, and I don't want to dismiss anybody, but serving really consequential time? 
Uh, Innocence Canada is a non-profit, of course, so we barely have the resources to look at homicide cases. We currently have 125 cases in our office that we're reviewing. Wow. 75 of those are on a two- to three-year wait list. We're trying to work on the other 50 cases. Uh, Mr. Mailman pointed out to me when we were driving to court uh, a week ago Thursday that there was 20 of us lifers in that particular prison uh, on one particular lifers range. We were looking for a little quiet area for ourselves, and we had 20 of us there. Of those 20, six have had their convictions overturned as wrongful convictions, including Mr. Melman and Mr. Gillespie. That's a 30% error. That's 30%, rate. yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. It is crazy. I, I can, and, and we feel that uh, there's a lot of, I hate to even use the term lesser crimes, but armed robberies, break-and-enters, uh, all kinds of plea deals that are struck across the, the country every day in courthouses that are probably wrong. People are, are so afraid of the system, and the system is so inefficient that people will cop to things that they haven't done. Do you know what really struck struck me, Ron, is what you said? That on the day that the Chief Justice of New Brunswick came to hear the case personally, the second trial, as it were, of Mr. Mailman and Mr. Gillespie, the Crown got up and said, First day. We don't have any evidence to uh, present. We recommend you acquit them. This is after they spent 18 and 21 years respectively in prison for a murder they did not commit. Over a 40-year period. Over a 40-year period. What what happened, of course, is uh, in unraveling their cases and all the time we worked on it, by the time uh, we put the information in front of the federal justice minister and they debunked all of what they were calling evidence, they were left with no real evidence. They never had any evidence. Yeah, they never had any to begin with. You're right. They never of had any to begin with. No, of course. So they, but they had a target. Yep. But at, at the same time that the, uh, the federal minister overturned their convictions on that basis, and the chief justice acknowledged and accepted that there was no evidence, apologized to them for what happened on behalf of the courts. We still had the attorney general in New Brunswick and the chief of police in St. John refusing to acknowledge and do the same thing. Yeah. Uh, it's innocencecanada.ca, right, Ron? It is. Okay. Yeah. And and you can certainly use contributions uh, from any and all of our listeners to help fund your nonprofit and help do the kind of work, certainly, the great work you're doing. We, we appreciate every nickel that comes in and we put it to good use. I'll send you a few nickels. Well, thank you, Roy. No, I think I'm, I'm not trying to be funny. It's uh, really no, no. <laughs> tremendously serious. And if everybody contributes a few bucks, we can help some people and some families whose family members were uh, wrongfully convicted. We, we, only, we only review cases after they've lost their their trials and all of their appeals. Okay. No place left to turn when they come to we will. We will talk again soon, Ron. Thank you for the time today. You're welcome, Roy. Thanks so much. All the best. And to you. Last September, we spoke with two young women, two young ladies in uh, Toronto. You have to forgive me, I'm from a certain generation. Yamna and Khadija Farouk. It was great talking to them. But it was scary talking to them because they, what they were facing was a rent increase of $7,000, not per year, per month from their landlord who could do it because the building was newer, the building they were living in. He wanted to raise it to 3500 initially from twenty five, as I recall, and uh, Khadija and Yamna sort of asked about that and said, this 
Landlord said, well, if you don't like that, we'll raise it to $9,500 or $114,000 a year. So you'd have to earn two hundred and twenty-eight grand to just clear enough to pay the rent, given our tax structure. Yamna and Kadeja Farouk join us. How are you both? Hi, Roy. It's Hi. nice to connect with you again. Um, I'm not doing too bad considering we got some sunshine today. That was a nice surprise. Yeah, it's, it's always a nice surprise, particularly when the temperature is really low, right? Yeah, exactly. So we talked last September, and uh, I outlined what your situation was. I've been curious, and listeners have actually been in touch with me over the last number of months. I'd get the uh, emails coming in occasionally saying, what happened to the uh, sisters in Toronto and that insane rent increase? How's it gone for you? Uh, well, Roy, it's been quite a journey. And while we can say that we're fortunate enough to not have landed in the worst case scenario, we were definitely presented with a lot of challenges. Um, we did not, in the end, get to move out to another place. Um, instead, we are staying with um, family, friends, and uh, just trying to figure out where we're going next. Oh, There's my. just so much that's up in the air right now and it's you know we wish we could say that it was neatly packaged and there was a perfect solution but unfortunately in cases like this that's not what happens no and it's 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 you know renting a, a place these days and these days by, by that i mean in the last six months even has yeah. become significantly more expensive and problematic there's fewer places available and those that are available are increasingly expensive Absolutely. Yep. And people that are in rent-controlled buildings want to hold on to them for, you know, forever if they could. But that makes it even trickier because everything that's new on the market, the rent, as you said, is just insanely high. So clearly that uh, previous landlord of yours was not interested in negotiating an agreeable rent, even though you'd been there for a number of years and were good tenants. Uh, yeah, we just couldn't really see i guess make him see reason and in, in a you know better and more agreeable decision it's just i think it was a, his subtle way of saying get out yeah not so subtle mm -hmm. definitely so, yeah so so you're 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 currently living with friends and family and you're, you're still looking for an affordable accommodation right uh, right now, we've suspended that as we're just figuring things out. Um, you know, as you mentioned, we're like the market is absolutely terrible. The rental market um, is just becoming more difficult for people to be afford uh, to live in this city. So we're kind of keeping an eye on things and trying to determine what is a good time to like move up or look for places. Is the rent going to come down? You know, also with the housing market being just a general um, mess, it we're just kind of waiting and seeing what what's going to happen in the next few months. That is so tough because, you know, well, I'm not telling you anything you don't know or anybody doesn't know. Shelter is, shelter and food are the most fu fundamental needs that we have. And when both of them start to spiral out of uh, out of control, the, the impact on individuals and then the broader community is, is massive. Mm -hmm. uh, did, yeah, that's been the, the toughest part of it is just recognizing it, that it's like 
the fundamental need to have a roof over your head and that when that's being like taken away or in question it just it, it creates so much stress stress so much anxiety so much panic it's so difficult yeah i was hoping you were going to come on and say we found this great place and it's what we were paying before and we're very happy but i understand the reality of the situation what about pu public support people became aware of you across the country uh, certainly in, in Toronto and beyond. Have, have you had response? Have, have people reached out to you or have you been recognized when you've looked at a, an, a, a rental property and people say, oh, I remember you. You were you were in the news. Uh, we definitely did have people reach out to us and, um, you know, mention that they might have a place. We had a, a realtor also reach out and offer help in kind. Um so I think, you know, now that we're not looking, obviously we haven't checked on whether people are reaching out, but at, at that time when we thought there might be, you know, a chance for us to find a new place, uh, we did find great support in the community. Yeah. And um, it was really interesting uh, going back to a point I made earlier is when we reached out to the realtor, we weren't able to get anything in our budget. It was slightly higher, but I just remember us saying, it would be great if we could get a rent controlled building. So something like this doesn't happen again, but he wasn't able to find anything. So it's just, yeah, that's what the situation is. Yeah. We were just talking in the last half hour uh, about the situation Canadians are facing and uh, the majority of Canadian Canadians are facing really significant financial stresses. Do you, do you find the, uh, and I don't want to probe too much here, but has it been something that's, um, I don't say depressed, but it, it has to become a, a daily uh, a challenge, right? I think. I mean, I would if I were in your situation, I'd be saying, "Well, what was wrong with that guy? I was a good tenant. I was paying my rent on time, and all of a sudden, this guy wants seven thousand dollars a month more. He wants ninety five hundred dollars a month for a two bedroom apartment. How's he going to rent that? But by the way, have they have they been able to rent that apartment? Uh, we're not sure. And, you know, uh, I think both of us partly want to warn other people, uh, but at the same time, we don't want to, you know, publicly uh, drag someone's name through the dirt. Um, it's just, it's, it is definitely something you don't get over uh, so quickly. And we're probably going to be processing this for years to come to really understand why this happened. You sound like such, I mean, it sounds like such amazing Young women, if I, if I had a place that I was renting and you wanted to rent it, I'd lower the rent just to get you. <laughs> <laughs> That's very kind of you to say. No, it's true. Well, I, I, I thank you for coming on. I, I hope you don't mind. I just wanted to, and I, I did hear from listeners who wanted to know how you were doing, and mm -hmm. I'm, glad, I'm glad you came on. Would you get back in touch with me, please, when... When it gets to the point where you where you find something and you're and you're happy with it, because we'd like to talk to you then. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Yamna and Kadeja. You're you just you sound like such amazing young women. So I wish you only the very very best. Thank you, Roy. Really appreciate it. I, I don't know if you've been following what's been going on in Germany. I have because I was in Switzerland uh, just two weeks ago. And the unrest was really starting to, to grow on uh, the border, across the border in Germany. 
which has now seen German farmers who are fed up with the federal government. And it began with a concern about the federal government in Germany saying we're going to reduce the subsidy for diesel fuel for German farmers. That may still be the core issue. Although I understand the Berlin government has said, well, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll phase that in now over three years, which has not satisfied the German farmers. They're out blocking streets and highways, basically shutting down the country. That may be an overstatement. My guest will be able to tell us that. But there's also the issue of, uh, you don't, what do you call them? Train drivers now, right? It's not engineers anymore. It's people who drive the trains. They are striking as well, and doctors are striking in Germany. Not a good, not a good scene. Center-left government, more left than center. And uh, now, now Mr. Schultz, the uh, chancellor, is trotting out the left's favorite term. Oh, extremists are taking over the, the farmers' protest. Farmers are farmers. They're not extremists. So we're going to talk about that, and then we're going to find out what the mood is in, among farmers in this country. So I was curious about what's happening in Germany, and then thinking, because farmers in Canada have said they're fed up with the Trudeau government because of the carbon tax and because of their fertilizer initiatives. Fertilizer is bad for the climate, says Mr. Trudeau and his sidekick, the environment minister, Giebel. But let's talk about what's going on in Germany. Our good friend, and uh, she's very good to this program, Katja Hoyer. Uh, Katja is a German-British um, journalist, visiting research fellow at King's College in London. She writes op-eds for leading international journals, and her new book, Beyond the War, Wall, rather, Beyond the Wall, A History of East Germany, 1949 to 1990, is doing spectacularly internationally. How are you, Katja? Yeah, I'm great, Roy. It's, it's uh, superb to be back. Yeah, congratulations on the book. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm very, very pleased with the way that that's read internationally. So that's put East Germany back on the map, I'd say. Yeah, for an entire ger- generation, it's, what's East Germany? But it, it's, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> people, people tell me all the time they wish they knew more about it. So yeah. hopefully there's, there's now an opportunity to find out more. No, about no, it. it's a great book. So talk to us, please, about the German farmers who are blocking roads, blocking highways, blocking cities with tractors. It looks like a a national endorsement for John Deere, uh, challenging the Schultz government. This isn't just about diesel fuel rebates, is it? No, I don't think it is. I think that's the uh, the trigger, really. That's that's kind of sparked these uh, latest demonstrations and and sort of gatherings of. of farmers, but really they've been saying for years that they can't uh, work under the current conditions as it is. They're not making enough money. Um, I mean, those that aren't self-employed, so those who basically work in the sector, they are on about 19,000 euros a, a year. That's that's way below average um, income. In fact, that's kind of on a par with, with minimum wage pretty much. So, you know, it's, it's basically economically unsustainable as it is. Um, and now that the government has basically tried to uh, remove some of the existing tax cuts on on diesel and and vehicles, uh, that's sort of you know given the last little spark to what was already quite a, a tinderbox of of uh, disaffection with the government. Yeah, I, I don't want to pigeonhole anybody, but I, I I think that farmers might be the least likely people. To, to demonstrate as the German farmers are because they're so busy doing what they're doing. They work from, from sun up until well after sundown most days. It's a, it's a difficult, difficult job. So we also had a situation where the vice chancellor of Germany 
was blocked from stepping off a ferry while returning to Germany from vacation. To do that really has to, to me anyway, it signifies a massive anger. And um, yeah, talk to us about that, please. Yeah, I mean, that was hugely controversial precisely because, as you say, he was on holiday on a, on a little island in the North Sea, presumably thinking he could kind of get away from it all over Christmas and New Year, and, and that just wasn't happening um, because effectively on the way back, his ferry was um, not just blocked from landing on the mainland, but also nearly uh, sort of stormed by the, by the people demonstrating there. And it was only a small group, around 300 or so, um, but there was a real fear, you know, around the security of, of the minister um, on, on board, Robert Harbeck. Um, so that's been condemned pretty much uh, wholesale, I think, in in terms and words that weren't particularly helpful. So the minister for agriculture, for example, so the person actually responsible for the sector, um, spoke of the, the wet dreams of uprisings that are going through the heads of some people and called the, the people who were there fanatics. Um, and whilst that you know, one could argue about the rights and wrongs of of the method of um, of protest that they've chosen there. Um, I don't think language like that is helpful. It's going to inflame the situation further, and I think it has. Yeah, wet dreams of fanatics. That's that'll settle people down down right away. <laughs> what, what's the public opinion generally in Germany? So he, you have the German people who are really disrupted by all of these tractors everywhere, blocking roads, blocking cities. But the German people also support, I would imagine, their farmers. So, so where's where's public support coming down? Well, I think it's uh, on the whole, people seem to be more positive about this kind of thing compared to uh, you know, sort of climate activist um, action where they stick themselves to roads or, or kind of you know smear tomato soup over over paintings and things like that. Because people realise, I think, there's a genuine uh, kind of almost existential fear of the farmers um, behind this. You know, they they simply cannot work under the conditions. Um, that they that they currently fa- face economically, and I think people understand that it's not just the farmers themselves, but also in, you know this is about food security, about making sure that that agriculture and food production is sustainable in the long run. And I think because of that, people feel it's directly to do with them and not just with the farmers themselves, uh, which is why support's higher. And it's interesting to look over to the Netherlands, for example, where these kinds of protests have been going on since since 2019. And I think there was the hope by the by the Dutch government that they would eventually stop um, because of the lack of public support. Uh, but in fact, the the people are largely still behind um, those uh, demonstrations, even though they've been going on for so long and, and have been quite disruptive. Um, and as you mentioned at the beginning, other sectors are striking too. Um, so I think there's a genuine feeling that something isn't working quite right, and that's that's why people can sympathise with the with the farmers. So where's this where's this going? Gotcha. You're right. It started with the, the the farmers in the Netherlands. It actually probably started with the Freedom Convoy of truckers in to Ottawa, which resonated in Europe. But where's this going in Europe? I mean, that's a good question because um, the government has already tried to row back a little bit in that it's taken uh, one of the two measures back. The vehicle tax um, exemption is kind of back in place. And the uh, tax on, on diesel has been um, sort of staggered, as you said at the beginning, over, over a few years. Uh, but I think even if they were to roll back 
those measures completely. I think the sort of genie is out of the bottle a little bit with this in, in the sense that, you know, this is anger that has been boiling under the surface for years. As you say, farmers are incredibly busy people. This is also not just a job to them, but a whole lifestyle often over generations. So they're, they're not necessarily easily moved into action like this. But I think once it's, you know, kind of unleashed something and they, they gain a sense of, you know, being heard, a sense of satisfaction of getting their their problems across finally because they now have a f- public forum. I don't really see this subsiding anytime soon unless something seriously changes because ultimately the problem is still there that you have a government that is trying to implement um, action on climate change very quickly, which also makes farming more difficult and more expensive without actually supporting the farmers at the same time. And that conundrum isn't going to to go away any time soon, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it, the potential for broader, wider unrest in Europe is, uh, is, is very clear. Katya, thank you so much. Uh, the book Beyond the Wall, A History of East Germany, 1949 to 1960, by our guest, Katja Hoyer. Thank you, Katja. Thank you. Auf Wiedersehen. Auf Wiedersehen, yeah. I was talking. I was speaking Schweizerdeutsch when I was in in Switzerland two weeks ago. So here I am talking to Swiss people as I'm talking to you with my Canadian accent, and then I switch <laughs> into into Schweizerdeutsch with no trace of an accent, any any Canadian accent. I'm I sound like somebody from the city of Bern, which is where I, where I lived which until I was fourteen. Means I wouldn't understand you anymore. So <laughs> no, you wouldn't. Absolutely, you wouldn't. People ask me, would German people understand what you're saying? I said maybe one word out of five. <laughs> Thank you, Katja. Thank you. The farmers in this country have expressed their unhappiness with the Trudeau government's including and increasing the carbon tax on their farm operations, as well as the government's determination to interfere with fertilizer use on Canada's farms, directly affecting farmers' ability to grow products and create an income. They work very hard. So how frustrated are Canada's farmers? And might they, at some point, express that frustration level in a very public manner? We're joined by Gunter Yohum, president of the Western Canadian Wheat Growers. Uh, Mr. Yohum, thank you for taking the time. No problem, Roy. So how frustrated are Canada's farmers with the current reality? And let's start with the carbon tax. Uh, we're extremely frustrated. You know, uh, we've uh, the the wheat growers have uh, uh, been made aware of the carbon tax right out of the gate when when it was only quietly talked about, and we've warned about this how disruptive it would be to our incomes and to our farms, and uh, now it's uh, it's going whole hog as in uh, they're increasing it every year all the way to $170 a ton and currently I think this year will be around $65 a ton and this on on my farm which is not really a really large farm uh, right now that is uh, costing me around that $40,000 a year of, of unrealized income. And it's not a line item, but it, it definitely, that, that is the cost that incurs on my farm. And it's just going to escalate from there. And then this fall, uh, there was a, a Bill C-234 was a carve-out proposed for um, fuel to heat barns and for grain drying. 
And the government went out of their way to block that all the way along, right through the Senate. Uh, I, I say there was political interference. It's, uh, it's very frustrating indeed. $40,000 is a lot of money. And the government says, but it's all revenue neutral. You get it back. You don't have to worry about it. We'll take it. But we'll give it back to you. And as Brad Wall said when he was the premier of Saskatchewan when he was telling, talking to Justin Trudeau, so, so what's the point? You're taking money, you're giving it back. Are they giving it back to you? You're getting it all back? No, we're not getting it all back. Um, you know, as a family, as a consumer, uh, personally, I get back, what is it, $260 every, uh, I don't know, a couple times a year. The farm, uh, at the farm level, we're able to apply for a... Um, some kind of a fuel rebate that is tied to the carbon tax. And last year we got a rebate that was right around that $2,000 mark. So you're out, you're out about 35,000. Exactly. Yeah. That's a lot of money for a farm. That's a, that's a lot of money and it's only going to get worse because the carbon tax will, will uh, inflate up to $174 a ton. Yeah. Right now we're at 65. So uh, by the time we reach that, it will be close to $140,000. And that, that, in the government's word of using the word sustainable, is not sustainable. No, I would imagine that would cause certain farms, many farms, to close. Absolutely, yeah. So here, here's the question then, and we just talked about the German farmers were furious with their government and blocking... Uh, city streets and highways and such. And our guest, Katja Heyer, told us largely the German people are supportive of their farmers. Are, are Canada's farmers close to, or are they sufficiently frustrated with what you've just described to uh, engage in a public protest, perhaps like the one being engaged in in Germany? Uh, you know, Roy, we're, we're not at that stage yet. But, and I sure hope we don't need to get to that stage, but you never know, you know, uh, the, the truckers, uh, staged a protest last spring and it, it ended badly for many of them. And there, there's still people suffering from that, uh, peaceful demonstration and, and farmers don't want to do that. Like Canadian farmers and, and Canadians in general, you know, we, we say sorry a lot and often, and, and we're very, um, I don't know, reserved people. And so we don't want to resort to that. But if, if our backs are pushed right up against the wall with no way out, and the government keeps coming at us and coming at us and, and, and wanting more and taking more, well, who knows what will happen, right? It's, uh, it's not good. So I, I sure hope it, we don't get to the stage that the Dutch farmers and now the German farmers are at. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're not saying it's impossible. Well, you, you never know. You know, uh, the week I mean, survival, right? Is it survival for you? Yeah, it is survival. And, and as an organization, and I'm president of the wheat growers, I, I, I don't, I'm not calling on our members to go and stage a strike like this. But if it, if it comes down to survival, you know, it, uh, 
who knows what will happen. We are, and I stress again, I will not um, ask my members to, to step to that kind of retaliation against the government. Uh, we, as, as a group, we lobby our government. Uh, we lobby the opposition. Uh, we talk to people like yourself. Uh, we talk to consumers and make everybody aware. And so it might not even be the farmers that do the protesting. It might be, might be just regular consumers, mm-hmm. right? I, I'm a consumer as well, right? I, I go to the store to buy my groceries. And, but, uh, Mr. Mr. Yohum, I, I only have a few seconds here, but without the farmers, we lose a lot of what we need as consumers. You lose you lose your farm. There there has There's a fine line here, and I think the government is... I'm just sharing my, my point of view in five seconds. The, the government's on that line, and, and they, they can't afford to cross it. Yes or no? Yeah? No? Yeah, right. Okay. They can't afford to cross it. We'll talk again. Thank you, Mr. Yohum. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.